The following message is by Pastor Steve Clark of the Evangelical Free Church of Salt Lake City. More information is available at our website, www.slcevfree.org. I saw a TV show recently about a team of archaeologists who were excavating in an ancient burial site in England. There had been some construction going on, and, and the workers had unearthed a pile of old bones, a, a great number of them, and they called in this team to look at them. And as they looked at all these many bones and the assorted artifacts that were there, and then found some written records in some other places and were able to piece together some history, they, they figured it out. They came to understand this was a, a mass burial site for a bunch of people who had been executed around the time of a switch in the Caesars, back from when Rome ruled England. These various folks had been deemed a threat to the new ruler, and so they'd been killed. Many of them were Romans. Some were local Britons. There were some high-level, wealthy politicians of status and class. Some powerful military commanders. Some learned men who were teachers and scholars. Some warriors, some slaves, some cooks, all kinds of people across the whole social spectrum. And now, not a bit of that mattered at all. They all lay in the grave alike. All the different social stratifications, the the thing that they clawed for and fought for to climb up here and, and acquire this wealth and this influence and this power over this person down here that he sent down. The, the ladder that was established in life was leveled and everybody alike was in the grave. Which brings us to Psalm 49. We've been working through the second book of the Psalter over the last month or so looking at selected psalms from between numbers 42 and 72. As we skipped over a few to to come to Psalm 49 this morning, we're going to notice again that we're touching on this theme of trouble and, and affliction, difficulty. Many of the psalms in this section are addressing that theme, although not all of them, but many of them are. And this morning, though, we're in the same vein. We're going to see it's touched on a little bit differently. There's a little different flavor this morning. The difference is kind of one of the difference between poem and proverb. Song and teaching. Not that songs and poems can't teach. We've seen that. They they can teach, but there's a different flavor to them. A song or a poem has a, a clear and strong emotional component. Whether it be great joy at a wedding song or just the, the raw hurt of some of the other psalms we've looked at, that's a little bit different this morning. Today we're looking at a piece of wisdom literature that deliberately calls us to stop and think about something, to ponder, to work something in. But we have to do more than just ponder. Wisdom literature in the Bible is not just about head knowledge, about some collection of factoids. Wisdom in the Bible is about how to live in a way that profits one before God. Biblically speaking, you can have a PhD and be a fool. No better than the beasts of the field. Or you can have the barest minimum of formal education and be wise. 
And the key difference, the deciding factor there is whether or not the truths and realities of God and his world have sunk into your life and are affecting how you walk through his world in relation to him. That's wisdom. Whether or not you have pondered and accurately put into practice the type of things like what God is teaching us in Psalm 49. I'm going to read the passage and then pass back over to be sure that we understand it before making a couple of overarching points. Let me read Psalm 49. Hear this, all peoples. Give ear, all inhabitants of the world, both low and high, rich and poor together. My mouth shall speak wisdom. The meditation of my heart shall be understanding. I will incline my ear to a proverb. I will solve my riddle to the music of the lyre. Why should I fear in times of trouble when the iniquity of those who cheat me surrounds me, those who trust in their wealth and boast of the abundance of their riches? Truly no man can ransom another or give to God the price of his life. For the ransom of their life is costly and can never suffice that he should live on forever and never see the pit. For he sees that even the wise die. The fool and the stupid alike must perish and leave their wealth to others. Their graves are their homes forever, their dwelling places to all generations, though they called lands by their own names. Man in his pomp will not remain He is like the beasts that perish. This is the path of those who have foolish confidence. Get after them, people approve of their boasts. Like sheep, they are appointed for Sheol. Death shall be their shepherd, and the upright shall rule over them in the morning. Their form shall be consumed in Sheol with no place to dwell. But God will ransom my soul from the power of Sheol. For he will receive me. Selah. Be not afraid when a man becomes rich, when the glory of his house increases. For when he dies, he will carry nothing away. His glory will not go down after him. For though while he lives, he counts himself blessed, and though you will get praise when you do well for yourself, his soul will go to the generation of his fathers who will never again see light. Man in his pomp, yet without understanding, is like the beasts that perish. Psalm 49. Verses 1 to 4 are the introduction, and they're what brings us to this idea of wisdom. We looked at Psalm 45 last week, a wedding song. You could almost see the setting of of the, the psalmist standing and singing this song to the wedding party. A time of great joy. Well, here the setting is is quite different. Come here, you peoples. Come here, all you inhabitants of the earth. The high, the low, the rich, the poor. Everybody, come here. Pull up a chair. I have something to tell you. I have wisdom to speak to you. A teaching to impart. A proverb. Something that I've been pondering and have come to understand. And I want to pass it along to you. I'm going to set it to music. But keep listening to the lyrics. That's the flavor of this. It's a, he's gathering together all kinds of people to pull them in and teach them something. Verses 5 to 12, here's what it is. 
starts with a problem. We humans, and he uses this personal pronoun of I to put himself in the place of the righteous person. He means we. We humans have this problem. We are tempted to fear in the face of trouble. And here particularly, the, the trouble is coming from wealthy people, those who are trusting in their wealth, who are boasting of the abundance of their provisions, and somehow or another have sinned against him and have surrounded him with iniquity. What exactly are they doing? Eh, it's not really clear. We don't know. As is often the case when he deals with the enemies, those in opposition, he doesn't really specify the details. What's clear is that there are people who are wealthy and are sinning against him, and he finds himself on the short end of the economic stick, suffering under their power. Money and power go together. He's suffering under their power, which immediately makes my mind leap to the current economic situation. It may be that there are not particular people that come to mind. Maybe it's just the system. But there are a number of us here who feel ourselves to be on the short end of the economic stick. Somehow put under by other things or other people out there. And as we sense the power, the ability to influence our lives and to control events, because we lose our jobs or we lose our income, we sense that and we're tempted to fear. And he asks, the psalmist says, why should I fear in the face of that kind of trouble? Rhetorically asking that, meaning I shouldn't. You shouldn't. We shouldn't fear. And here's why. Here's the wisdom point. Verses 7 to 9. Because this rich guy who's exploiting you, saying, look at my wealth, he's just as dead broke as the rest of us before God. There isn't enough gold in Fort Knox. There isn't enough gold in the whole world for any one of us to buy our life out of the grave. Not my life, not somebody else's life. And we all, verse 10, every single one of us is leaving everything here and dying. Verse 12. Man in all his pomp, in fine clothes, well-mannered and well-manicured, educated, urbane, flushed with cash and power, regaled in the best the world has to offer, in the best of all places and circumstances, is nothing more than a dead man walking. Every one of us, walking to the grave. We're born dying and we will perish one day. We know that, but we don't really believe it. No. Which is what verses 11 and 13 are about. And depending on which translation you read, you might have some footnotes that indicate some uncertainty as to how exactly the wording goes in 11 and 13, but the basic point is clear. People all over think that the earth is their home and they live for it and lay claim to it, put their name on things and call my house, my car, my city. I'll even name this place after myself. That extends our influence and our power. And people will applaud us for it. It will add a certain amount of prestige. Spreads our fame and our power, but we're all walking the same path to the grave. Selah. Which is that term, Selah, is a term that is essentially calling time out. Saying, pause for a second. 
and let that sit on you. Let it sink in here. Get this. Man, in all of his pomp, will not remain. He's like the beasts that perish. Walking towards the grave. And it is a foolish confidence to trust in wealth. Selah. Then verses 14 and 15. Since we're not remaining here, what happens? Notice how in these two verses, three times he mentions the word Sheol. Or if you're reading the NIV, it'll say the grave. Which is a fair way to translate it. Sheol is, in the Old Testament, the place where the dead go. The grave. It's not really speaking of of a final destiny like we might think of like a heaven or hell. It's just the grave. You die and you leave the land of the living and you go to the grave. Now what happens there is another question. But he's emphasizing we're all going there. You will die, you will leave here, and you will go to the grave. And what happens there? Well, the fool, verse 13, he's emphasizing those who foolishly trust in wealth is divided in the grave from the upright. There's a division that happens there. Morning comes, and now the shoe's on the other foot, and the upright rules over the the fool. And the fool is left in the grave to be destroyed. The image developed here, this flock and this shepherd The image of sheep being led along somewhere, and and sheep never know where they're going until they get there. And this foolish person who's trusted in his wealth is just kind of walking along, led not by a good shepherd with a, a a staff of protection, but led by a figure wearing a dark hooded cloak and carrying a sickle. And he wakes up one day to find, lo and behold, I've been led into death, and here I am. And what happens now is that I'm left here in the grave to perish. But the upright... The psalmist places himself in that position. What happens to him? My soul is ransomed from the grave. And I am brought into, received by God. Where there wasn't enough gold in all the world to buy, to ransom a life out of the grave, there is another ransom capable of breaking the power of the grave and capable of bringing me into God. Selah. Pause there and let that sit on you. And if that's rested on you for a moment, verses 16 to 20, here's the conclusion then. Looping back to the problem in verse 5, fear is unfounded. We should not fear in the face of all this. Don't be afraid when you see a man become wealthy, when you see his power growing and you wonder if he's going to begin to use that against you, or you sense that he is using it against you. The glory of his house, meaning his household, increases and expands and he's kind of climbing the ladder. Don't be afraid of that. Though people will applaud him and you'll get accolades in this earth, in this life, he's going to die and leave it all and go to where his fathers are in the grave and never see the light of day again. Verse 20 then, same thing as verse 12, with an important addition. Man in all of his pomp, yet without understanding. It's the addition. Man in all of his pomp, if he doesn't get the point of this wisdom psalm, is just like the beasts of the field that perish. That's the text. A wisdom psalm urging us, and this is the main point for this morning, 
A psalm that's urging us, place confidence in God alone to secure your life. Place confidence in God alone to secure your life, your your whole life. Not just a little sliver, the very small, minute sliver of it. The 70, 80, 90 years of it that you live here on this earth. Place confidence in God to secure your whole life. He alone can do that. So the psalm is is urging on us. I'm going to approach that through two observations. There's the first one. The human problem that's raised by the psalmist here is a question of security. We human beings are constantly looking for safety, something that establishes us and protects us. A place where we can hide and be protected and sheltered from trouble. And the psalmist is telling us that you cannot secure your life with the riches of this life. That's the point. You cannot secure your life with the riches of this life. Let me explain where I see this. Fear is the explicit issue raised in verse 5 and then spoken of again in verse 16. So he's specifically addressing, don't fear. All that trouble that arises when you find yourself disadvantaged somehow economically, threatened somehow economically. Don't fear that. Now, this might strike close to home for some of us right now. Probably does. Many in our country it would. The lack of money, the abundance of money somewhere else, which means the lack of money in my hands, creates a sense of vulnerability. The psalmist is, is looking at, maybe some of us are dealing with that, a sense of vulnerability as your job is threatened or gone. Your retirement account is dwindling in, in your past working days. It's what you live on and it's going away as you watch it. Your power to, to control, to secure your life is fading, it's perishing, and there's a threat in that. The other side of that So there's a a threat to our security there. So he talks about fear. The other side of it is when you've got plenty, you feel secure and you trust in it. Verse 6, they're trusting in their wealth. They have confidence in their wealth. So no matter which way you're going here, the issue is a question of security tied up to the stuff you have. When you lack it, you fear. When you have it, you're confident. And the psalmist is saying, that all of that is wrong-headed. The whole game is off. And he argues that through an interesting line of reasoning. Interesting to me, at least. He says, why should I fear? Meaning, don't fear. And 16, he says, especially, don't fear. And what I expect to read there is something like, don't fear, God's got your back. Don't fear, he'll come through for you. He always meets the needs of his people. He provides for them. He'll take care of you. He'll oppose your enemies. Something like that. That's what I expect to see there. Or perhaps, don't fear because those people who are against you, their schemes will fail. Or don't fear, they actually don't have your ill will. They don't have ill will towards you. They're not actually going to harm you. It just looks like it. Don't fear, you'll get through it. Don't fear, it's going to be short-lived. 
That's not the argument. He doesn't say that. Don't fear in times of trouble because this is all going away. Life's 100% mortality rate is his argument. Do you see that? Don't fear this guy, he's going to die. In fact, we're all going to die. The wise and the fool die. We all go to the grave. That's an interesting argument. It's not a promise, though, that's, though there's truth in this promise, about God meeting the needs of his people. It's not talking about that, though. It's broadening our perspective. It's urging you, look at a bigger picture here. There's more to life than this life. It's a big life out there. And that one is surely rushing towards you. Who knows when it will arrive? But it will arrive. All of us are going there. And when that comes, not if, when we go to the grave, not only does our wealth prove incapable of keeping us from getting there, it proves absolutely irrelevant in determining what happens to us when we're there. We talk about things, my car, my house, put my name on the mailbox, I die and go to the grave, somebody else moves in. Whose house is it really? He dies and goes to the grave, somebody else moves in. She dies and goes to the grave, somebody else. Whose house is it really? All that stuff is just staying here and we're all moving on to a place where none of that matters. But there is a divide in the grave. Something happens there. And our earthly wealth cannot touch it. You cannot secure your life with the riches in this life. How foolish and how tragic it is that we humans so consistently fail to grasp this. We intellectually get it. I bet a dollar that everybody who's sitting here is saying, uh, sure, of course, yeah. We talk about it. Who's ever seen a hearse behind a U-Haul? A U-Haul behind a hearse. You know, we, we talk about it like that. Of course, we all know that. We don't live that. Not at all do we live that. We know it, but we're ignorant of it. Biblically speaking, none of us, or a few of us, rarely walk in wisdom on this point. Given the fact of death and the fact of a reckoning after death, it is the pinnacle of folly to derive all of one's confidence and security from something confined to this life that cannot go there and do anything about it. And he calls together all of the peoples of the earth, the rich and the poor, high and low, everybody, because everybody needs to hear this. This is not their problem or the wealthy's problem. This is our problem, your problem. Look how anxious we are about this economic thing. That should be exhibit A, in proving this is our problem. And if you're not really anxious about it, odds are it's because your job's still secure. 
Look at the, our nation. Look at even us. We're not, Utah's not even in the worst of this thing, but Utah, we are anxious about this economic thing. Now, I'm not saying that we're supposed to neglect our responsibility to work and that there are, there are, I acknowledge, realities about how it's more difficult to find work so it might create more physical stress in searching for it, etc., etc., etc. There are more things to consider in looking at how we respond to this economic situation that we're in. Psalm 49's contribution is that a large chunk of today's fear could very well be due to the fact that we have sought and found security in a power that is perishing before our eyes and we don't know where to go. Is that you? read a book recently that had a quote in it. It said, Affliction introduces a man to himself. Of course, you could put woman in there too. Affliction introduces a woman to herself. The pressure comes and you find out who you are. And it could just well be that fear is rising up in you right now because what you were hoping in, as you lean on it, it's going. Is that you? Are you finding that out about yourself? You cannot secure your life with the riches of this life. Is that you? Whatever the case, Psalm 49 also holds out some encouragement. A hope that a, a large bit of this fear can be alleviated if you, if you take a larger view of things. If your scope will expand and you'll see there's more going on than just this right here. I had a friend in college, a roommate actually, who used to say to me, every time I got anxious about something or, or flustered about something, he'd say, Steve, in 10 years, is that going to matter? And a lot of the times, not every time, but almost every time, I think, no, it's not. In 100 years, is any of this going to matter? Now, my little qualifier here, don't hear me saying that all of life is irrelevant. God gives things, expects us to be stewards of them, etc., etc., However, in a hundred years, is any of this going to matter? Every single one of us in this building is going to be dead in a hundred years. Is any of this going to matter? A thousand years from now, is any of this going to matter? Has anything about your eternity been changed by a 33% decline in the stock market? Anything. No, the stock market hasn't even been around for more than 150 years. It's a little blip itself. And this is a really little blip. In a thousand years from now, you'll be in the grave and something will have happened to you beyond that and none of this will matter. That's Psalm 49's contribution. There are other things. Yes, use them. Be wise stewards, etc., etc. This point is, we fret and we worry because we're trusting in something that perishes and we can alleviate that by expanding the scope of our view and moving our hearts and moving what we're fastened to to something else that's bigger and broader and lasts. That brings us to the second observation. If there is no lasting security in the riches of this life, 
Nothing that we have, nothing that we can do or accumulate will keep us from the grave. Is there any hope? Praise God there is. God himself will ransom the upright from the grave. God himself will do what none of us can do. He will employ the greatest of all treasures to buy his people out of the bond of death. The screams at us from the contrast between verses 7 and 15. No man or woman is able to ransom himself or herself or anybody else to buy us out of life's end, buy us out of the grave, and there's a buying that must happen there. That's what ransom is. Think of like a, a kidnapping. You, you pay a ransom and the one who's holding that person under control lets the person go. That's, a ransom is a buying of someone else, someone out. We are held. We're held by sin and the just punishment of it. The grave holds us and we must be purchased out of that. That's what a ransom is. That's our greatest threat and our greatest need. Overcome that danger. Eternal death left in the grave forever to be eternally destroyed. Wealth can't touch that. But, verse 15, there is a ransom available from God and not from any human being. God will ransom my soul from the grave and receive me into his presence. We all die. Death takes us to the grave. And what happens next? There's a division there. It's clear. The the details are not all sketched out. You don't get a clear picture of heaven and hell and etc., But what you get is mourning. There's the dark night of death and you see morning dawns and things are reversed. The upright now rule. And this one is left there and the upright is ransomed out of the grave. You don't get all the details that we find in the New Testament, but you get enough of them there to realize there's a division and a buying out that is accomplished by God himself. And obviously at this point we just have to mention Jesus. He's really clearly here. How does a person become upright and righteous when the law says that no one, no man, woman, no boy, girl, none of us are righteous and upright in God's sight? We're all lawbreakers. How do you become righteous? How do you become upright? How does God release a captive from the power of the grave? He's the one who places us there and he's the one who holds us. The power of the grave is the penalty of eternal destruction of a sinner. Someone who has broken the law of God and rejected him. And God says, the punishment for that is my eternal wrath. And I'm just. How does he set a sinner free from that? How does he receive someone into his presence? This one who is holy and righteous and perfect without sin. How does he receive people who are covered in it? Sinners all the day long. How can he do that? Jesus explained it in a sentence, speaking about himself in Matthew 20, 28. The Son of Man came to give his life as a ransom for many. 
There's the ransom of God. No pile of riches in all the world proves sufficient to ransom a person out of death. So God took his greatest treasure from another world, sent him here into a body so that he could give his life in my place. In the place of many, in fact. All who would receive him. This is the gospel. God ransoms people out of the grave, frees them from the power of his wrath by sending himself, God the Son, to give his life as that ransom. This is the glory of Christ, and it is right here in Psalm 49. God himself will ransom his people with the blood of his Son. If you've not trusted him, if you have not spoken directly to him and said, Father, ransom me, please apply the blood of this one, his life, into my place and set me free and receive me into your presence, the presence in which there is fullness of joy, pleasure forevermore, says Psalm 16. Receive me into your presence, free me from death. Apply Jesus' blood to myself. You haven't said that. You haven't trusted him. Please, I plead with you, do that. The tricky thing about our hearts is that we often prefer to think, and that's what it is, it is a preference to think, this is never going to happen to me. It is. As sure as you're breathing now, you will stand before him one day. And he will say, do you have a ransom? You pull out your checkbook and he says, that's not what I'm talking about. Show me the blood. Yours or my son's, one of the two. As sure as you're sitting here today, you will stand before him. And there is an offer on the table right now to take this ransom. Do so. Do not prefer otherwise. Turn to him. And when you have, for those of us who have trusted him, this is meant to be a wisdom teaching to you. Psalm 49 is supposed to open your eyes and show you something that you, that you already see but don't really see. It's intended to illumine for you the eternal insignificance of riches and wealth and pomp and praise and power and homes and households. In other words, all the stuff that we usually chase. There are other parts of the Bible that will tell us how to use those things and how to employ them. This part is saying, you're leaving it all behind. Don't spend your life chasing it. To open up to us the eternal insignificance of this stuff and to cause us to revel in the eternal significance, the marvelous glory of the ransom that God has given in His Son. To hope in that, to seek after it, to spend your life trusting Him, and therefore growing in wisdom and not fearing in the face of trouble, and to spend your life helping other people come to trust in him and therefore to know a life not fearing in the face of trouble. 
It's to open your eyes to something here. To change your perspective. I saw this with new eyes myself. I'm still seeing it, but I saw it clearly for a moment on the day that we brought our firstborn home from the hospital. You know, they make you bundle the baby up in the the car seat. So I'm carrying this thing on my arm. And we walk out of the hospital. And unbeknownst to any of us, my in-laws had rented a limousine, great big long white limousine, so that we could ride home in style with a little bit of class. And so that her first ride would be one of pomp. So we're, we're surprised by that. We weren't expecting that at all. So we stopped there and we're exchanging some words and trying to figure out what to do with it. And, and, I, and I glance to the right and I'm captured by a fascinating contrast. Here's a white limousine right here, me carrying my one-day-old daughter. And right over there, 10 yards away, there's another white vehicle, an ambulance. And there are two men of approximately my same age picking up a stretcher with a feeble 80-some-year-old woman on it, putting her into that white vehicle. Her strength is gone. She's limped, she's got the oxygen mask on, and they're putting her in there to drive away from the hospital to who knows where. And it's just a moment we're moving towards the limo and that catches my eye and it strikes me. Here are the bookends of life. Here's my daughter. There's my daughter if the Lord would give her that many years. And it won't be me putting her in that vehicle. I'll be long dead by then. In fact, two guys who won't themselves even be born for 30 more years. They're the ones going to be putting her in that vehicle and taking her off into another future. Not in pomp, not in class, in style, but in a certain bit of cold efficiency. Will she have grown wealthy in her years? Been married? Born children? Raised a family, built a home, shaped a community, wielded influence, displayed strength, lived in excellence. Who knows? All questions yet to be answered. But all questions that in a very real way don't matter a bit because not a one of them can buy her back out of the bay of that ambulance and add years to her life and keep her out of the grave. None of them. Nothing in all the world, not the education that I might give her, not the wealth she might accumulate, neither power nor prestige, not family, not goodwill, none of it can buy her out of Sheol and bring her into the presence of God. Who will she be? I do not know, but pray God that she, that you will be wise. And you will see Man in all of his pomp, in all of his prestige and power and the accumulation of all of his things, if he does not get this point, that there is only one ransom available, 
If he doesn't get that point and seek that ransom with all of his, with all of her life and heart and soul and mind and strength and trust that ransom is no better than the beasts that perish and go to the grave forever. Selah. Let me pray. Father, give to us hearts and minds of wisdom. Not information. Wisdom. There is little information this morning that we did not know, but there is much wisdom that we lack. So, Father, by your Spirit, would you illumine our minds and give us eyes to see To wrestle with the fact that we're dead men, dead women walking. And while we still live, there is something that we can do about that. But when we go there, there's nothing more to be said. Give us eyes and minds and hearts to see that. Give me eyes and a heart to see that. Father, would you shape us? to grow us and mature us. Father, we're going to celebrate communion in which we, we look at elements that are representing that ransom that you have delivered to us. Would you speak to your people now through these elements and call them to live lives bent not on climbing the ladder longing for wealth and other things that are powerful but perishing. But live lives that are, are sold to this Christ who is our ransom. And would you speak to those who are not yet your people and call them in. Give them faith, Lord, I pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to this message by Pastor Steve Clark of the Evangelical Free Church of Salt Lake City in Salt Lake City, Utah. Feel free to make copies of this message to give to others, but please do not charge for these copies or alter the content in any way without permission. We invite you to visit our website at www.slcebfree.org or call us directly at area code 801-943-0091. Our mailing address is Evangelical Free Church of Salt Lake City, 6515 South Lion Lane, Salt Lake City, Utah, 84121.